When the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. We read in the book of Kings. Amen. May that be so for us. The scripture reading today comes from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. You can follow along in your Bibles. It's also printed on the bulletin. The book of John, chapter 4, starting from verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the worshipers, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know 
that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Allow me to pray before I begin. Dear Heavenly Father, you have promised us that as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth to bring forth a harvest, so your word which comes from your mouth does not return to you empty, but accomplishes that which you purpose for it. Lord, I ask that this morning you would make good on that promise in this assembly for the sake of your great name. Give me, your servant, the tongue of those who are taught. Give your people ears to hear. Father, give success to your word that it may yield a harvest for you. In this church, in this city, and around the world, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's wonderful for me to be back in Philadelphia, the city where I was born again in Christ 11 years ago, and to be back at 10th Presbyterian Church, the first church that I attended at that time, my first church ever. It's a joy and honor to be part of the Global Outreach, Global Outreach Conference this week. Uh, my thanks to uh, the pastors, the elders, uh, and the Global Outreach Commission. And it's a great joy and honor and a privilege for me to bring God's word to you today uh, from this historic pulpit. But before we dive into the word, uh, let me address your curiosity. Uh, when a man with an accent uh, gets up on a pulpit to preach, it obviously begs a question. But I hear that your pastor also has an accent, so... I feel I'm in good company. The truth is we all have an accent, but only some are believed to have one. (laughs) My name is Shiv Muthukumar. I was born in India and raised in a Hindu family. I grew up in the city of New Delhi. I came to the United States uh, 13 years ago uh, to uh, this city, to Philadelphia, to pursue a graduate program in computer science at the University of Pennsylvania. I was young and ambitious, but I was also very lost and idolatrous. My idol, I think my biggest idol, was my academic and my professional pursuits in the field of computer science. But looking back, I think by the grace of God, that idol began to kind of crash before my eyes. While I was successful on paper, Uh, Deep inside, I was very, very empty. Uh, My success uh, did not deliver for me the joy that I expected of it. Rather, it left me more and more dissatisfied. And failure was also beginning to knock on my door. I was busy with studies and with work. And if I had any free time, I would walk on the streets of the Penn campus feeling completely lonely and very lost, having no idea what is the meaning and purpose of my life. Why am I here? Why do I even exist? And in those days, I had come in contact with some Christian students, 
on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, the Penn Graduate Christian Fellowship became part of their fellowship, and some of them were attending here at the 10th. Uh, they took me to the 10th International Fellowship, which is now called I.O. And uh, I will tell them later today that I owe you something. <laughs> they befriended me. They loved me. And uh, they shared their lives with me. They did not judge me for what I believed or what I had to say. Uh, or the fact that I was attending three temples and other Hindu groups in the area. And in those days, the 10th International Fellowship worship service was uh, in a hotel nearby where uh, we have been hosted by 10th this weekend, myself and my family. And at that time, as a Hindu, I didn't want to be in that hotel. I wanted to be in this place, in this wonderful, beautiful building, believing that this is where God is. But brothers and sisters, when those believers raised, lifted up their voices to praise him in that hotel hall. God was there. His presence was palpable. And even as an unbeliever, I felt the weight of his presence and it made me weep. I wept a lot through a number of worship services. I didn't know why my tears wouldn't stop. Perhaps the Holy Spirit was washing over me and in those days, a couple of pastors from 10th uh, befriended me and uh, began to read the Bible with me. And God began to reveal himself through all of this Christian love and the word of God and through being in worship. And I trusted in the Lord, not knowing what this would mean for me, what it means to believe in Jesus. Out of desperation, I wanted to hold on to something. And Christ reached out his hand. And in the days following, I recall what I later read in scripture. That, and I felt it. That in Christ, I felt like a new man. I felt like I was an adult baby. I have to relearn how to talk. How to walk. How to live. Soon after I moved to the, after graduation, I moved to the city of Seattle to work as a software engineer. And in those years, I felt, uh, I, I joined a local church, I joined an international student fellowship, and began to sense that maybe God, God is calling me to be a pastor. I resisted that call for a while, uh, but eventually I accepted and God uh, led me to a seminary in the Chicago area, Trinity International University, where I got my MDiv and was later ordained with the PCA, and I'm currently serving as an associate pastor at a church in the Seattle area. I met my wife, Namhee, who is from Korea, and uh, yes, in our home we have both kimchi and curry. And we are blessed with our son who is two years old. His name is Samuel and um, they are with me here this weekend. I want to thank 10th for their warm hospitality. Well, with that introduction, I'd like to turn to our topic for today, which is evangelism. Or we could call it outreach, keeping with the Global Outreach Commission uh, Conference. Outreach meaning reaching out to the world with the love and message of Christ. A call that is given to every believer 
who believes in Jesus Christ. And for me personally, I would say it's the desire to see others come to know Christ like I did is what kind of drove me to a full-time ministry of the word. But sometimes when we think of the word evangelism or outreach, we uh, think of maybe large rallies in which uh, the gospel message is preached by a famous preacher or a pastor, or maybe weekly uh, programs by a local church uh, in a church building, or maybe at an individual level we might imagine handing out a tract to someone on the street, um, or maybe... Uh, kind of memorizing the Romans road and be able to kind of regurgitate it to someone, maybe a friend or some stranger that we have met on the street. We kind of also tend to associate evangelism with uh, professional Christians or uh, volunteers. And while these means of evangelism are not wrong in and of themselves, I think the problem is that we are now living in a new kind of world, in a new kind of America that is much more pluralistic with a number of competing religions and philosophies that are all considered to be valid spiritual paths. And having come from India, I feel I have left India, but I haven't. We are still in this world where The gospel is misunderstood, mischaracterized, the church is marginalized and even antagonized. So it should not surprise us, friends, when the old means and methods which were more suited for a Christendom context do not work well anymore. So what must the church do? What must the church do in order to fulfill the Great Commission not not only in Banaras and Burundi, but right here in our backyards. What should we do? I believe the key to this lies in the whole church rising to the occasion, stepping up and reclaiming and exercising the priesthood of all believers. We are all believers in Christ. Every believer translating and embodying the gospel to their neighbors in ways that they can receive and understand as what it really is, which is good news for the whole world. I find the definition of crew, which was formerly called Campus Crusade for Christ, their definition of evangelism quite helpful. It says, and I quote, uh, taking the initiative to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Taking the initiative to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. And if I were to build on that a bit in keeping with today's text, I would say evangelism is taking the initiative to show Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And let God do what he wants to do with that. Every believer taking the initiative to show Jesus. That is what ultimately evangelism is about. To show Jesus out of love for him and out of love for our neighbors. So how can the church today learn or relearn outreach or evangelism? How can we all become bearers of good news in this world? Well, I suggest that we turn to no other than Jesus himself, the master evangelist, 
the outreach from heaven, the Son of God, who also ministered in a, in a much more pluralistic world 2,000 years ago. And for this, I'd like us to turn to the story of the Samaritan woman from John 4, which I just read, uh, to whom Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. This is a marvelous, marvelous passage worthy of several sermons and several points, but I'd like to touch upon just three dynamics that are at play in evangelism, in our evangelism. There are a number of things that are at play, but I'll touch upon three things that I see from this text. Firstly, the dynamic of time and place, when and where we are called to do evangelism. Secondly, the dynamics of power or social boundaries that sometimes keep us from doing evangelism. And then thirdly, the language or the speech uh, that we are to employ in evangelism. So time and place, secondly, power, and then the language. So let's get started first with time and place. And I get this from the first seven verses of this story that we must not gloss over because they provide an important context for this interaction. The Gospel writer John tells us in verses 1 to 3 that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now John alone is the gospel writer who depicts Jesus' ministry as going back and forth between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. This is still early in Jesus' ministry and it's at a point where Jesus' ministry is beginning to grow and outgrow the already large ministry of John the Baptist who had a large following in Judea. And Jesus didn't want the Pharisees to think that he is somehow in competition with John, so he decided to quietly leave back up north to Galilee where he's from, quite unlike the celebrity pastors of our day who enjoy the limelight, Jesus quietly slipped away. And then we get what I think is a very interesting statement in verse 4, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Literally it says it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Remember this is Jesus, the son of God, but now in his incarnate form he's submitting to geographical necessities. He's not flying over Samaria, but he is accepting from the hand of God a layover in Samaria. Passing through it of divine necessity, Jesus chooses to stay in Samaria for a while. Jesus comes to this town called Sychar. It's near the field of Jacob, where the well of Jacob was, and this is where all these events take place. It is of historic importance, especially to the Samaritans, but it's still a backwater place. It's a place that the Jews avoided. Even Jesus' disciples who were there waiting, it was lunch break, they had to go into the city to buy food, which means there was no 7-Eleven in sight. It was a sixth hour, which means it was noon. The sun was probably shining hot, and we are told Jesus sat down by the well, 
weary of his foot journey. He did not drive an SUV. And there comes this woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus asks her, give me a drink of water. Do you notice all of what is going on here by way of time and place? It is absolutely fascinating. You know, we are given no details whatsoever of Jesus' mega ministry in, in Judea, in the heartland of Judea, with probably hundreds of people getting baptized. But God makes a big deal of his ministry, obscure ministry, to this unknown, unnamed woman of Samaria during his layover, ordained by divine necessity. A place that the Jews would avoid. It was an unpopular place. Jesus is hungry. He's thirsty. He's tired. He would be justified if he would turn a blind eye to this woman and say, I'm tired. Just another person. I've seen many people. He could think of her as an unwelcome interruption during his downtime while he's waiting for lunch to arrive. But for Jesus... There is no unimportant person. There is no unwelcome person. Even if that person is not on the ministry itinerary, it's not on the schedule. He is the one who initiates the conversation. He reaches out first. For Jesus, there is no time which is bad for ministry or no place that is boring for ministry. Even as he accepts his human limitations of where God has put him at what times, he's willing to minister to those whom God has put on his path. Earlier this year in the summer, uh, we live in the suburbs of Seattle. Seattle has beautiful uh, summers. Um, It's long days until 10 o'clock, it could be sunset, and with the pandemic restrictions kind of loosening up, and our son, who became a toddler, we, we took him to the neighboring parks, um, playgrounds, where he could play with other kids, and, and there were other parents who had brought their children, and I noticed uh, a man from India uh, who was wearing a mask, and he was there with his young daughter, and uh, he kind of appeared to be very familiar to me. And I, I kind of struck up a conversation and, and I said, do, do I know you? And he showed me his face. And sure enough, he and I had worked together in India 14 years ago. And here we are at that playground because of our children who brought us there. <laughs> or he would be working and I would be working elsewhere. And his head was shaven, which is a sign of mourning for Hindus. And he told me that his father had passed away and he was visiting from India and his father died. He was in grief and was asking all kinds of spiritual questions and allowed me to share the gospel to him freely. Accepted a Bible from me, invited my family to come to his place and wanted us to, me to teach the Bible. And going to the playground because of interactions like these, number of interactions like these became a new routine for me. So I would come back home a little bit earlier from my office in the church so that I could be at the playground. And I suddenly realized the playground had become my real office. 
the office of an evangelist. I, as a software engineer, I liked my office back then. I liked my office in the church building with you know, bookshelves and all that. And this was a blow to my pride that a playground is my office. But the Lord gave that to me. Where is your office, each one of you, brothers and sisters? Where is God calling you to be present with your eyes open and your hearts willing to reach out? Whom has God put on your path that you might be overlooking? Who might be waiting for you to initiate? Ask the Lord to open your eyes and your mouth to seek out friendship uh, with them. Now secondly, if you have embraced the time and place of um, the dynamics of time and place for evangelism and initiate a conversation, reaching out to them like Jesus does, the second thing I think we are faced with immediately is what I would call the dynamics of power um, or maybe even social boundaries. Notice this Samaritan woman is taken aback by Jesus' request for water, let alone speaking with her. In verse 9 she says, How is it that you, a Jew, asks a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Even the construction of the sentence in Greek, which shows through in the ESV, there is Jesus on one side and the woman on the other, and there is the social chasm between the two. Multiple boundaries that have been erected, and Jesus breaches them all. The boundary of gender. Jesus is a man and she's a woman. And unlike in our modern Western culture, it was uncommon in the ancient Near East for opposite genders to talk and mix, especially in a public place and when there is no one else. There's the barrier of race and ethnicity. Jesus is a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And John gives us that parenthetical comment for a reason. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans were a mixed race of people. They were half Jews and half Gentiles. And the Jews looked down upon them. Others looked down upon them. The Jews would not even pass through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan, go up north, and swing back in if they want to go to Galilee to avoid ritual purity, much less drink their water. There is the barrier of religion, and this comes out later in the conversation. The religious beliefs of the Jews and the Samaritans were different. The Samaritans had taken a version of the Mosaic Torah, the Pentateuch, and they rejected the kings and the prophets and God's institution of the temple in Jerusalem. But there was another major, big boundary between the two, that of morality. This woman is of questionable character. In verse 17 and 18, we learn that she has had five husbands. We are not told why. Maybe they died, maybe they left her or they got divorced. We are not told. She's had five husbands and she's living with a man who's not her husband. Even by today's standard, that will raise questions. No wonder she came in the middle of the day to get water and not in the morning. So she could avoid the women of the town maybe mocking her. But none of these social taboos prevent Jesus from reaching out 
to her. He risks breaking all social customs with that simple request, give me a drink. You know, for us in our context, this would be something like a, maybe a white church-going man making contact with a black Muslim woman or maybe a well-to-do Asian-American woman reaching out to a homeless man in a part of a town that people avoid and asking, do you have any gum? Oh, we are shocked to them. Someone who's culturally and socially other, stigmatized, excluded, and shunned. But not by Christ. Christ calls us to not be parochial, to not be within walls, but to build bridges where there are barriers. But there's more to this. Notice, Jesus never plays the upper hand in this dialogue. Despite being the Messiah himself, he has no superiority complex. He has no Messiah complex whatsoever. I I see this as a conversation between two thirsty people, two equals. Jesus is thirsty for physical water. The woman is thirsty for spiritual water. Jesus has spiritual water. The woman can draw physical water, and Jesus is willing to make an exchange. As Christians, we are called to engage in outreach and resist the temptation to assume some kind of a moral high ground that makes us look down upon unbelievers or to assume that we have the good news and we are here to deliver it to them free of charge. We cannot afford to come with an agenda or with the mindset of winning their souls which is more colonial than Christian but to, to come and love their souls and be in their presence as equals. For without the grace of the gospel, we would be no different from them. Genuine outreach is not hindered by admitting our needs and weaknesses. It might even be furthered by that. Jesus saying, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. Jesus is teaching us what is humble evangelism like. Humble evangelism respects the other person, engages them as equals. It is not easily offended. You know, she says to Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? Oh, you don't know whom you're talking to. <laughs> Jesus doesn't, you know, he, this is such a long passage. Why? She does a lot of talking and Jesus lets her do that. He doesn't dominate or control the conversation. He is willing to follow where she wants to go. But he doesn't shrink back from speaking the truth in love. And when Jesus reveals his insight into her broken past and her broken soul, she's very quick to deflect his gaze and say, oh, you must be a prophet. You know, I have a theological question. Rabbi, where should we worship God here at Mount Gerizim or at Mount Zion? In Jerusalem. Jesus does not dismiss the question of this unlearned, uneducated, maybe immoral woman. He doesn't respond back with another question as he did with the Pharisees. Humble evangelism is willing to listen, is willing to engage their questions. 
is willing to get, go where they want to go. He offers her the pearls of God's kingdom saying, he gives her the truth of the messianic age that true worshipers worship not in this place or that but in spirit and in truth. And isn't that why God was present in that hotel room? The foundational principles of Christian worship is given by Jesus not to the great Nicodemus in the previous chapter but to this humble Samaritan woman who is not named. The last are made first. I bet this woman felt respected and loved by Jesus. Something that probably she never got from any man. She went from man to man. And then she meets this Jewish man who is unafraid to tell her both that her life and her theology has some serious problems. But he doesn't take advantage of her in that deserted place. Doesn't condemn her but with genuine love and respect speaks with her. She's forgotten all about drawing water. She's lost in conversation with him. Loved by him in a pure way. As an unbeliever, I was fortunate to receive that kind of love and respect and engagement by Christians that I met here at 10th and at Penn. They loved me without any prejudice of what I believed, what I was saying. They gave me a safe space to kind of empty myself. They gave me the good news of the gospel, which took me a long time to accept. But they loved me in patience. We come now to the third dynamic of language in verses 10 to 15, which is the heart of the conversation. And I have to be brief here. Jesus speaks of living water. After we've embraced the place and the time of um, evangelism, if we have also assumed a posture of humility, we are still left with the question of speech and language. How to meaningfully convey the gospel in ways that are not confusing, certainly not offending. How can we do better at sharing the gospel in a way that actually meets them? The missionary encounter, as some have called it, not where our, meets, our planes don't meet, but we actually help the gospel land in their hearts. How do we do that? I think what is desperately needed in our evangelism is what I would call compassionate and incarnate creativity. Compassionate and incarnate creativity. And I think here Jesus gives us a splendid example of this. In verses 10 to 15, he says, Ask me and I will give you living water. Here's a desperately thirsty woman. She's thirsty for water, comes to the well. She's thirsty for intimacy, goes from man to man. She's thirsty for fellowship, avoiding the women of the town. And deep down, she's thirsty for God, to worship him. And Jesus offers her water, a water that quenches the deepest thirst of her soul, living water. He says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. It literally says, never ever be thirsty unto eternity. 
for that water which I will give him will become in him a spring of water bubbling up to eternal life. To Nicodemus, who might have been proud of his Jewish birth, that same salvation was offered by Jesus as a new birth. But to this thirsty Samaritan woman, salvation is offered as living water for her thirsty soul. Jesus looks into her soul, understands her deepest needs and her brokenness, and gives her the gospel in a way she can receive and understand while still confronting her idols, but at the same time fulfilling her deepest longings. Compassionate and incarnate creativity. And it calls all of us to deeply drink of the gospel and understand the gospel, soak in it, and then yet also be fully immersed in the world to the people that we are called to give the gospel to, that we are called to minister. That's the hard work of love and wisdom, of bringing the gospel while being in the world, but not of it. The gospel, I think, is like a, is like a, a diamond, a multi-faced diamond, and we are called to think of which face is the one that we are called to first show to the person before us so that they can enter into this mansion which has a number of doors. If it's an Indian Hindu versus a Muslim versus someone from a, a different kind of religion, Buddhism, secularism, different people are at different places and we are called to understand them and understand the gospel. And the the example that comes to my mind is that of the guilt versus shame presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus took our blame, our guilt, and we are counted innocent because of what Christ has done. But on the cross, Jesus also took our shame Notice on the cross, Jesus has been deserted. He has been rejected by the Jewish leaders, by the, Israel, the nation of Israel, by his own disciples. He is all alone on the cross, covered in nothing except his blood. Is that shame? That is shame. That is our shame that he took and bore upon himself. And because he took our shame in the eyes of the Father, we are welcomed We are welcome. Think of the prodigal son on whom God puts the robe, the ring, and the shoes. Does he have work to do? Yes. But is he accepted in the house? Yes, he is. The dynamics of time and place and power and language all converge at the end for the Samaritan woman in verses 25 and 26. She asserts, I know that the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus, in a rare act of unambiguous self-revelation, which was so uncommon for him during his ministry, he didn't do that before the Pharisees, the crowds, but to this unknown Samaritan woman, he says, I am. I am the Messiah 
who is speaking to you, of whom you are speaking. The Son of God found at one place and one time, the God of all gods having power over all things, standing before her as a man who is hungry, thirsty, and tired. The Word of God now made flesh, transcending all human languages, standing as a man before her, showing himself to her. The ultimate goal of evangelism is not just to befriend people, to confront their idols, or to even express heavenly truths in intelligible forms, but to ultimately show them Jesus. And here is Jesus showing himself. Leaving this water jar, you know what happens. This woman runs into the town not only as a believer, but she becomes an evangelist instantaneously. Before she could be catechized, before she could be baptized, she has already become an evangelist, helping a number of people in her town not only to meet the Messiah, but to receive the Messiah. Indeed, to be a believer in Christ is to be an evangelist because when we have seen Jesus, we want to show Jesus. This woman shows Jesus not because she saw him doing evangelism, but because she saw him. She saw Jesus. Can you imagine? This Jesus who from the cross cries out, I thirst, who says from the cross, who bowed his head and says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit offers the living water to quench her soul thirst and our soul thirsts. Offers us the Holy Spirit freely to every believer with the promise, out of your hearts, out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. Is that good news? It is. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your great outreach from heaven. You reached out, sending not merely angels, but your very son, not as a spirit, but in human form. Knowing our thirsts, our hunger, our weariness, our need, yet without sin, giving up his life on the cross as a sacrifice to satisfy every longing of our soul. Father, we thank you for this great gospel and we ask you and praise you for sending us as emissaries of heaven. I ask, Lord, that you would give us the willingness, the boldness, the love, and the compassion that fits with those who follow Christ to make him known, and for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.